0: Well good morning church. Today we are going to be back in the book of Revelation and we will be in Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 through 20 but uh, well where it's been a few months two months since we've been in this book I I just want to briefly bring us back up to speed so we'll we'll start with a a summary of and then, we'll, and then we'll get into verses 6 through 20. But before we begin, let's pray. We don't have it in us on our own to receive and love and hear Your Word. And so, Lord, I pray that You would soften hearts, starting with my own and all of us here, that You would... Show Your mercy and Your grace to Your people and the terrors of judgment that drives men to You. Please be with us, God. We don't want to just offer up the best that men can do. Lord, we want to meet with You. And apart from You, everything this morning will be waste. It's only in Christ. And so we we appeal to You. And... Ask you, according to your promises, to meet with us. That Lord, you would today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Book of Revelation, it's structured, if you remember, in seven cycles of seven. So there were, you know, seven churches, and then seven seals and seven trumpets seven scenes or signs and and here in the shortest of these seven cycles, seven messengers. And each of these cycles, as we we saw, they're not moving chronologically. It's not, well, this happens and then in the history of time, this happens and then this happens and on like a string of events. Now, each of these cycles spans the entire history of the church and, and it's looking at this history from a different perspective. This is why you have... By the way, and probably the clearest indicator of this, is multiple final judgments in the book of Revelation. For instance, when all the mighty men of the world cry out for the rocks and the caves to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, everybody recognizes this is a a picture of final judgment. In fact, it's even an allusion to Isaiah and in Isaiah it says, "When God comes in, in the end, in final judgment, people are going to cry out for the rocks to fall on them and hide them. But that happens in chapter six. And then in the end of the book, there's final judgment that takes place: when the sea give up their dead, and everyone stands before the throne of God. And here in chapter 14, there is a final judgment at the wine press of God's wrath after the harvest of the earth. And so you see, Revelation is a, a cyclical book, and seven times it retells the redemptive history of the world and what God is doing from various perspectives. And the first perspective, in chapters 1 through 3, it's from the perspective of the church or the life of the church. It's, it's really judgment beginning in the house of the Lord, and Christ Himself comes and judges or commends the churches. But the point is, is it's a call to faithfulness on the part of God's people. And it really sets up the rest of the book. Chapters 1 through 3, the letters to the churches, are not a separate section divorced from the pre- uh, preceding 18 chapters. They all go together. Many of the warnings and calls and encouragements in these opening chapters, they come up again and again as God's people are warned repeatedly, don't give in to the world. Don't give in to false worship. Don't break under the pressure of demonic religion or demonic government or demonic systems. Don't compromise on Christ or on His word for the sake of ease or economic gain or freedom from oppression in the world. Instead, we're called to the opposite. We don't give in and make peace. No, the church is called to advance and to conquer. We do it through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's the call to believers in this opening section of the book of Revelation. It's always, the promises are always given to who? To those who overcome, who triumph. And there are incredible blessings and promises if you do. And so God prepares His church for the difficulties she will encounter by warning her, encouraging her, and even purging her chapters 4 through 7, of the second cycle. And this time it's from the perspective of the suffering church. The church is suffering in the world. And it begins, of course, in chapters 4 and 5, the, the glorious depiction of Christ coming to the throne, the assurance that He is King over all. He's, he's the worthy one. And if you remember the drama playing out, all, the, all of heaven is gathered together, the elders, the people, and John says uh, he weeps because no one is found worthy to enter the scroll, uh, open the scroll that is in the hand of God. An angel comes and tells John, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has arrived. And then when he looks, he sees the slain lamb. And when the Lamb arrives in the heavenly temple, He walks up to the throne, takes the seal out of the hands of His Father, and sits down at the right hand of Majesty on high. He sits down in His rightful place upon the throne of the universe. He's worthy to open the scroll and to carry out the decrees, the will of His Father in the world. And as He does, he is like a commander leading an army on campaign. And there are battles to be fought and losses to be had. And the aim of this cycle is to remind the church that as we are faithful in this world, we will suffer. But as we suffer, it is according to the wise and loving will of our Messiah. The Lord Christ is sovereign Over it all, and in His wisdom, He has decreed that it is through many trials and tribulations that the kingdom will advance and we will be saved. And we suffer for the sake of Christ. We suffer physical persecution, economic trials. We suffer all the normal pains of living in a fallen world. when this time of constant sorrow draws to a close, our suffering will come to an end Forever. And those who made God's people suffer, their torment begins in earnest. The mighty ones, the generals, the rulers, the leaders of this world, they cry out when God appears, Who can stand? Right? Who can stand? That's the cry when the Lamb comes, because they're looking around and they're seeing the mightiest of them laid low. But an answer comes. And before the throne of God, you see a great multitude standing in His presence. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, all of those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, they will stand. In chapters 8 through 11, it's no longer the suffering of the church and the world, but now it's from the perspective of those who dwell upon the earth. And this is is important because, as you probably know, because you've heard me say it before, those who dwell upon the earth does not mean everyone who is alive on planet earth. Now it means those who are worldly, those who are ungodly or against God, they belong to the world. The world is their home. Believers like Christ are not of this world, but are always pictured or described as being in heaven. Well, those who dwell on the earth are those who are worldly or of the world. And chapters 8 through 11 shows how those who are of the world suffer in the world begins with physical suffering and quickly escalates to spiritual suffering. But, but the one thing you see immediately is that those who are not Christians actually suffer more in this world than those who are. You think about it. They have no hope when trials come. Trials come upon them. What do they say? They cannot say, this is from the hand of an all-loving, all-wise Heavenly Father. So I don't know why this is happening. It probably has no purpose whatsoever except to remind them that they're fallen. But no comfort. And not only do they have no comfort, they actually suffer more because of their sin. They drink it down like it's a, it's a poison that destroys them and their families. Christian, how many times have you avoided difficulty in your life because you knew God says this is wrong and I shouldn't do it. And you were spared tremendous pain. And how many people do you know who don't have that warning cringe and actually rejoice? In the end, they lose it all. Everything they hope for, everything they put their trust in, all of it alike, is condemned along with them as the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. The worst possible outcome for a fallen rebellious people is that their kingdom and everything they built up is taken away from them and given to Christ and His people. And we learn in this woe that God is able at the same time through the same event to both bless His people and restrain, rebuke, or punish those who oppose Him. Chapters 12 through 14.6, the second cycle From the spiritual perspective. And I mean by that from the perspective of the spiritual beings, the angels and the demons, archangels and the devil. And it's a a cosmic battle of constant defeat for Satan. He fails at every instance. You notice that when you're when you're going through those chapters? He fails to prevent the church from coming into existence. He fails to prevent the Messiah from coming from the church. He is defeated by Michael and cast down, symbolizing his inability now because of Christ to accuse the saints any longer. I mean, if you were to ask, what does the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ look like from the perspective of the devil? It looks like a great, tremendous battle spanning the heavens, and he lost. He's disarmed. He cannot accuse any longer. He can do no eternal harm to the saints. So does he yield? No. No. It says he goes to make war on them because he is furious and knows his time is short. And how does he, how does he carry out this warfare? He forms a, a kind of unholy trinity, doesn't he? Himself, the dragon, the beast from the land, described in characteristics to Christ. He's mortally wounded, yet comes back. The false prophet, a beast from the sea. And you see, he's aping Christ. He's aping God. He's aping the Holy Spirit in a false, anti-God, anti-Christ religious system. And all of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life fall for it and they worship at His unholy altar. But, but it's not a, a religion that He creates. You're not going to go down to the street and never find the Church of the Beast. You no, know, it's any idea or religion or philosophy or government or institution or ism, anything that exalts itself against the Lord and against his church, any movement that does this and is, that, that does this is animated and empowered and controlled by the evil one. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care uh, what the people in it think of him or if they even acknowledge him. All that matters is that they make life hard for the church, and in the end, they are condemned. And so just as the church, by the power of God, carries out the mission of God in the world, so the world, by the influence of the evil one, carries out His mission of warring against the church and sending as many souls as possible to hell. He oppresses the church through buying and selling, through doctrinal confusion, through governments captive to Him, and He uses people as His agents, often without them ever knowing And in the end rewards their faithfulness with death. He is a wicked and a cruel master to these people. Well, the cycle ends with his demise. Not at the hands of the angels, but when the Lord returns with his holy ones. They're pure, they are redeemed, they're singing, and they are his. And the last thing the devil sees before he is cast down finally is the failure of his fury and the upsetting of his kingdom forever. That's where we've been. And now we can turn to the shortest cycle in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, 6 through 12. The suffering of the wicked in the world to come. Revelation fourteen six through 12. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second following, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of her passion and of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and with sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever in the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he said with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest. Got your full attention. And so you begin. Let me tell you the eternal gospel Fear God, because He is going to judge you. For most of us, when we think of gospel preaching, the idea of judgment makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And yet, here in this passage, not only is judgment front and center, the angel begins with it. It's the starting point. Right? When he opens his mouth to deliver the message, it's this. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. It's strange to our ears. Now, we don't think of judgment as good news. We think of judgment as bad news. It's not. I mean, is it bad news if someone tells you, stop poking that bear or you're going to get mauled? All right? Or if someone they're, they're trying to get somewhere, a certain place unfamiliar with the area, and they're lost, and they pull over, is it a bad thing if you tell them you're going the wrong way and you need to turn around or you're going to be lost for good? might be hard to hear, but it's a good word. Or if a person's breaking the law, and you tell them stop it before you get arrested, is that a good thing? And if people have transgressed against God and are under His judgment, isn't it right to tell them? Shouldn't they want to know so that if there is any possible way of escape, they can take it? This is a good thing. Now, now, I'm talking of judgment, the announcing of judgment, but the judgment itself is good too, and we'll get to that next week. But we don't think of announcing judgment as often thing that I enjoy ever possibly be worthy of condemnation. I don't even think it's that bad. They may even go on the attack to defend it. Who are you to tell me I can't love who I love? Who are you to tell me it's wrong to pay my taxes just a little bit? Who are you to tell me I shouldn't say that joke or dress the way I dress or watch what I watch or say what I say or think what I think? Who are you to tell me my thinking needs to change? Whatever the list. As long as there are sins in the world, there will be the list continuing. And even the residual sins still in redeemed believers can make the idea of judgment an unsavory subject. That's one of the reasons why it makes us uncomfortable. For people, for some people, it's, it's, it's no different than telling them that their beloved pet is evil and has to be put down. Another reason people recoil at judgment is because it's aimed at them. It's not aimed at their sin. God does not judge sin and send sin to hell. You, you all realize this. It's not sin that will stand before the Lord on judgment day. It's sinners. God doesn't judge sin. He judges sinners. And for people who think well of themselves, who idolize self, hell I knew them. They're good people. And if I ever have to stand before God and he sends me to hell, the last thing I'll tell him is, fine place for you to send me. You being like that, sending all those good people to hell, you know, if I see God, I'm going to tell him, you're the one who should be there. Hitchens. And you hear that, and, and it almost makes you angry, doesn't it? If you understand what's, what's being said, it ought to, to demand that God be thrown into hell, because you know what's best. It's a blasphemous judgment against God. You understand the same thing happens when you tell others they are going to be judged by Him. It's not just taken as a warning. If their idol is self, if their God is self, going to be judged, you have said, you've blasphemed their God, that God of self, by announcing judgment on them. And so it's received very poorly. But the third reason people do not receive judgment as good news is because when they hear it, they know what it means they must do and they fear the consequences. Which is probably the closest to the point here in Revelation. You say, Well, what do you mean? Many know the consequences of their sin, and many people even believe that one day they'll have to answer for them in one way or another. But rather than fearing the Lord, they fear the repercussions of turning from the beast. Which is why I believe this message comes where it is in the book of Revelation. This is the most evangelistic passage in the entire book and it falls right here and it's proclaimed to a people who are worshiping and giving glory to and fearing the beast. And the message is what? Turn from the beast and give yourselves instead to God. And if these people know anything, they know what that means. They know what it would mean to depart from the God of this age. They know the loss that it would incur, they know the reviling it would bring. They may have been a reviler themselves. They know the persecution's gonna come from their family, from their friends, their employer, their, their social group. I mean, they know how they themselves used to talk about Christians. And they're afraid of the cost. And for these people in particular, who are in the throes of beast worship, who have who have fully invested themselves and their hope and their future and their joy and satisfaction and purpose, their lives into this world and its ways. They hear the gospel. And and all of that now seems like it's on shaky ground. But they're fearful of retaliation from the world or the loss following Christ will incur. For this group above all, judgment is good news. Puts everything in its proper perspective. It's like in Matthew 10. People are afraid. Jesus puts it into its perspective. He says, don't fear man who can kill you. But fear God who can kill you and your soul in hell forever. And the, the gospel question here given to those who dwell upon the earth, the worldly, the enemies of God, the worshipers in this worldly system, it's who are you going to serve? Right? What kingdom are you going to be a part of? A kingdom of the beast, which is easy now, kind of, but destined for destruction, or the kingdom of God, which is hard now, but destined for eternal glory. This message is for men and women all over the world. The scope is not limited. The angel gives this message to all without distinction so that when judgment comes, no one will be able to say, well, I didn't know. No, judgment does not fall on those who never had a chance. Even in Romans 1, it says, all men know God. And it doesn't say they know that He exists. It says they know Him. Creation testifies to this Creator. God made all things. And everyone knows this. And knowing it, they reject it to one degree or another. But God created this world not just to make His existence known, but to make His character known and His goodness undeniable. I mean, when you look up in the sky and you see the vastness of outer space, and and now we know uh, some of these stars are billions of miles away. You see that, and it's... It's almost beyond what you can comprehend. You know why God did it this way? So that when you look up into the night sky and see all of these stars, you know what you should think? God's power is immeasurable. Think of it. If you were an all-powerful being and wanted to create something to show just how mighty you were, probably the best possible thing you could do is create the universe around us. And that's what God did to show us how Vast his power extends. And when people see these things, I mean, that's just one example. There are as many examples as there are molecules in this creation. When people see that and, and, and encounter God in creation, not in a pantheistic way, but when you see what he has done, it ought to have the effect of causing them to seek him. That's the intended effect. See God in creation. I have to seek Him. They ought to give Him glory. They ought to thank Him for their lives and for their breaths and for every joy they've ever known. The angels remind the people of this. God made the rivers and the seas and the earth all things good and wonderful, so worship Him. And so the message is universal in scope. But I imagine it resonates with One group in particular. As the devil seems to get a stronger and stronger grip on society and the love of most grows cold. Society seems to be losing its collective mind. There are people out there who do not know Christ. At the same time though, they recognize something is terribly wrong. Right they have an inkling of right and wrong their consciences haven't been seared completely they have some grasp of reality they may even have an affinity for the church and say that's a valuable institution but do not have Christ and this is a call to them are you going to turn from the beast and give glory to God are you going to fear God Or fear what this world can do to you? Are you going to fear man who can stop you from buying and selling? Or are you going to fear God who owns all things, including your soul that He holds in His hand? And it's as though God looks right at you this morning and says, you know the way, you know righteousness, you know the gospel, you know judgment is coming soon. The signs are obvious. Fear God then and worship Him. Worship the One who owns all things and created them and made them for His glory. And then the objection. But what about the beast? What about the world? Do you know what this will cost me? Do you know what the world will do to me? Yes, he does. Which is why the second angel is dispatched. And the message on this messenger's lips is Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. You know, what does that have to do with anything? Well, what is Babylon? Rome? Rome's a type of Babylon, but it's Babylon. And it's not a rebuilt Babylon that some people obsess over that's ridiculous. Isaiah said in chapter 13, Babylon is going to be destroyed and never be rebuilt. And so we don't pit Isaiah against John. And you say, well, if it's not Rome, and if it's not a rebuilt city, well, then what is it? This isn't very hard. In the Old Testament, God's people, because of disobedience, were carried off into exile. And the land of their exile was the land of Babylon. And so Babylon came to mean to the Jew the place of their exile. It was the place of their sojourning, of their wandering. Just like the wilderness in the book of Numbers. It's a a picture of people living, being, existing in a place where they do not belong. Babylon is that place of exile. And the picture is of the church and of believers in the world, in a a world where they do not belong. And that world and its system is called, in the Bible, Babylon. And so Babylon represents the governments, the institutions, the economies, the, the cultural mores, all the powers that be in this fallen world. It's, in a sense, the kingdom of darkness. And in the same way, the church is the kingdom of God and the world, the, the visible expression of his rule and his reign. Babylon is the expression of the influence of that unholy trinity the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, Babylon comes up again prominently in the coming chapters. It's powerful and it's successful. It can be a, hmm. here, the first mention of it. And the first thing the Lord wants all people to know about Babylon is that underneath all of its apparent success and power is that Babylon is fallen. Christians are people in general terrified of Babylon. The power of the leaders of the world, it can be an intimidating thing. But however powerful, listen, however powerful this world appears, the powers that array themselves against the Lord, they're nothing compared to Him. And so what every Christian has to remember, when you look at the world around you, yes, it appears to be mighty. Yes, it appears to be powerful. Yes, it appears to be invincible. And you wonder, how could the church ever do anything in such a dark place? Babylon is fallen. And what a message to those who are afraid to leave its gates. That city that puts fear into your heart is destined to be destroyed. And in fact, it's already begun to be destroyed. The city itself is characterized by passion, we're told, and sexual immorality. Well, that word passion, it's the same word used elsewhere as, as rage or anger. And that's characteristic of people in this city the city of of man they're full of anger and unrestrained sexual burning and that obliterates a people a culture cannot survive imagine if your home your household the two things fueling it were rage and sexual immorality how long would it last it's not going to last is it maybe a week when you have a culture that is fueled by rage and sexual immorality, it's not going to last. It is on its way towards destruction. You see that in the world around you, don't you? It's devouring itself, filled with anger, rampant sexual immorality, but that's what world Christians become like Christ. Worshippers of the beast become beastly. And unlike the city of God, that new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, never to be tarnished again, the devil's Babylon will fall. And this warning is to those who are in it. I know it. It's going down. Get out while you still can. I mean, fault lines are appearing everywhere and it's starting to crumble. And if that's where you live, the time has arrived to come out and be saved. Verse 9, third message. We'll have to come back to it in more detail next week. But it brings the two of these together. God will judge the world and the world will not stand. Everything you're hoping in, if it isn't in Christ, it's condemned. Your religion. Personal religion, however you want to define it, your your hope for the future, those things that impress you, those things that your heart longs for, what your hands work for, everything you love and rejoice in, if it's not in Christ and done in Christ and for Christ, it all stands condemned before God. It's a vain hope that can't deliver you. That's all you have if you don't have Him. It's not going to last. And so fear God who can give you an inheritance that will never pass away. And this third message, yes, it's a a warning, but also a pleading on God's part. If you continue to worship the world and its ways, you will suffer tremendously forever. That's, That's the point. If you go on worshiping the beast and you love the world as opposed to God and godliness, there will be a price to pay one of the verses that's just become so real in recent years is count the cost, right? I don't know how many people I talk to and, and they're realizing more and more there is a cost to following Jesus. Most of us are paying it in one way or another to varying degrees. But following Jesus, it's not an easy road. It's narrow and it's hard. Or lose your life now and keep it forever. And that's the message of these three angels Fear God because this world is fallen and it's going to be destroyed forever. And the only way of salvation is by turning from and forsaking this world and clinging to God in Christ. There's no other hope and there's no other needed. I want to close this morning with three applications. One, as the days are increasingly growing evil, the church must not retreat. But strive all the more to reach out with the gospel message. As you see evil increasing in the world and the demonic appears to have the upper hand. It never does, but sometimes it looks that way. There is a a, a call here to the church to respond to this evil by intensifying in its effort, not relaxing it. There is a a tendency today in the church among believers to think, well, things are bad, world is lost, nobody wants Christ, it's time to sit back and wait it out. The favorite hymn is, hold the fort for I am coming. Well, it's true, Jesus is coming, but the church is not called to sit back and barricade. The church is called to advance a kingdom and to rescue those who are held captive by the beast, by the evil one to do His will. I mean, you read about Abraham and he gathers up his trained men and he sets out after Lot and you think, what a rescue mission. He went up against an army that certainly outnumbered him and he smashed them to pieces. He did what the five kings and their armies on the plains couldn't do. Listen, believer, we are called to the same kind of rescue mission. It doesn't matter how great the power of our enemies or how influential or how numerous or how apparently invincible. The power of the world cannot keep a child of the Lord God captive forever. And God has called and sent us to go and get them. And so when you are speaking the gospel, you're on a rescue mission to save men and save women and save children from being ravished by the world and judged by God and thrown into a lake of fire. You're on a rescue mission to gather God's sheep from the mouths of wolves and from lions that would devour them. And when they appear to be increasingly chained, increasingly condemned, that's not the time to shrug and let it go. But redouble your effort and your labor. Make make a maximum effort so that somehow, whatever it takes, you might save some of them. The need isn't lessened because evil has increased. If anything, it's more urgent. I mean, how could it not be when, the, when you look out at the world and it seems like the mouth of hell is opened up devouring people at an accelerated rate? I think that means the church might accelerate itself to stop them from being devoured. That's one application we see here. When judgment comes... As it increases, the angel intensifies the proclamation of the gospel. Second, and I know I say this a lot, but I'm going to keep saying it until everyone who hears me starts believing it. God's warnings are for our good. God's warnings are always for our good. Sometimes I wonder why in... 2023 people still die in natural disasters and I mean I mean things like floods and wildfires and snowstorms things that can be predicted well in advance and prepared for maybe you remember just last winter on Christmas Eve there was a a huge storm came up through the through the middle of the country and it, it dumped 50 inches of snow with 60 mile an hour winds Alerts were sent out, people were warned over and over again. You got messages on your phone saying, Stay inside. It was on the news. Things are going to be bad, and you've got to be ready when it happens. Well, the storm came, and I remember reading about one family. They were in Buffalo, New York, a young lady and her and her mother, and they heard all the warnings. They knew they ought to be ready. They were told you should be prepared. They were told, stay inside, don't go out. And then the storm comes. And what do they do? The lady's mother, who was undeterred by all the warnings and alerts, she decided, I've got to run to the store, told daughter, I'll be right back. Now, of course, by this time, the storm was full-fledged, raging outside. But, you know, the store's not a five-minute walk away. And I've gone there many times before. I could do it in my sleep. Everything would be fine, she thought. It wasn't fine. And she wasn't gone for 20 minutes. She went out the door and was gone for hours before the daughter received a phone call letting her know that her mother's body had been found in a snowbank only 200 feet away from the home. She didn't make it 60 seconds in the freezing tempest. She ignored all the warnings, all the alerts, all the advice, and it cost her her life and when you, when you hear that, when I read that, and I, and I hope when you hear it, you think, why? Why would she do that? She could see the storm raging outside. She knew it was deadly. They told her this would happen. Why didn't she get ready? Go to the day, uh, store the day before. She was so well-warned and so unprepared. And what's worse why was she one of hundreds who did the same thing and paid the same price? It's just such a foolish, avoidable loss of life. And even worse than that, infinitely worse than that, is to hear the gospel message over and over again and hear and treat it the same way. There are going to be a lot of people who walk into eternity like this woman walked into that storm. Confident that she's going to make it, ignoring all the warnings, and were found utterly unprepared. 60 seconds. And maybe that sounds like you. And you've turned from God again and again and again and again, and you've said no, and you've rejected the Gospel maybe a hundred times. Is there any hope for you? Third application, mercy. It's still being proclaimed, but it's going out with even more urgency. You see how merciful God is? I mean, it's like the countdown has begun. Right? Ten, fear the Lord, all you nations. Nine, judgment has arrived. Eight, turn to God. Worship Him. You're about to be destroyed, but I'm giving you one last Chance. Five. Lay down your arms. You've no hope in this battle. When it comes, you will lose. It's not going to go the way that you expect. So don't fight it. Two. God is merciful. God will forgive you. One. Hurry. Quickly. And then the time passes. And the end arrives. But you see the mercy of God here he isn't even saying lay down your arms and i'll give you a quick death instead of a slow one it's not that kind of mercy it's throw down your weapons because this is the final opportunity from you to go to go from being god's enemy to being his friend this is the last chance you have from being a criminal condemned and becoming a love a beloved son it's like Noah in the ark you remember Noah in the ark Noah warned the people. He was a preacher of righteousness. Did it year in, year out for 120 years. Judgment is coming. But if you, by faith, enter into this ark, you will be saved. And the door was open until the very day the rain began to fall. God then reached down and closed it. God's holding open the door until the very last second. So long as faith is possible you may come. But when God appears and judgment begins, salvation no longer is possible. Why? Because you're saved by faith. And when God appears undeniably, and for when those who trust in Him, their faith becomes their sight, in that moment when all of the warnings come visibly true, faith which is what? Hope in what you cannot see, it becomes an impossibility. There comes a time when the door will close. But until it does, it is most assuredly and graciously held open. I don't know if anyone's thinking thinking this, but don't presume on God's grace. Don't hear me say this and think, well, okay, I'll just wait until the end. Now, you don't know when that end will come. I mean, you might not make it through the night. So don't play such a silly game with your soul. God has extended mercy. He has called you to come. Even on the eve of judgment, come and be saved, spared from the destruction that will overtake the world. That's God's message to a sinful, worldly, Beast inapture, enraptured people. Leave it behind. It's fallen. It's going to be destroyed. Don't fear it. Don't fear man who can stop you from buying and selling or fire you from your job. Fear God and give him glory. You do that by turning from the world and coming to him. So, would you come to him this morning? Go to Christ to be saved well let's pray Lord I pray that this morning was an encouragement to your people Lord seeing your mercy extended reminds us just how merciful you are you will forgive to the uttermost those who come to you through Christ and no sin is greater than your Ability to forgive it. Lord, I pray for those who do not know You or may presume or are fearful of the world or are hard-hearted. Lord, overcome their resistance. Show them the beauty of Christ and draw them to Yourself. Let them heed the message, Your message, to fear You and give You glory. Because judgment is coming. And Lord, you are merciful, but you are also just. And you will not allow sins to go unpunished. There is a judgment. There is a certain judgment that will come. And I pray, Lord, that we will all be ready when it does. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.